0: morning the Bible reading today is from Acts chapter 15 we're going to read the whole chapter and I'm reading from the NIV some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses you cannot be saved this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question and after much discussion Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to hear? Sorry, to bear. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent, its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. (coughs) It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Basabbas, and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization, and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. The men were sent off and went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas who themselves were prophets said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. After spending some time there they were sent off by the brothers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord some time later Paul said to Barnabas let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing Barnabas wanted to take John also called Mark with them but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And God will add his blessing, God will add his blessing to the word today.
1: Thank you, Anne. When I was about 15 years of age, one night we were going off for a double date And we headed off to the movies one night. We were at Southland Shopping Centre and we hadn't decided what movie we were going to see until we rocked up to the ticket box. And we got to the ticket box and there wasn't much on that particular night that we knew much about except one movie called Scream. And we didn't know much about Scream except that Drew Barrymore was in it and we all thought Drew was all right. So we decided to go and see this uh, romantic flick called Scream. And so we went into the movie and if you've seen the movie, um, I'll pray for you later, but if you've seen the movie... You will know by the end of the first scene, you can imagine our shock when Drew Barrymore is killed off in the first scene, and we realise that we're actually in a horror uh, slash serial killer movie, not a romantic movie, which is not ideal for a date. And so we come out of this movie fairly traumatised, and as we walk out of the movie, the cinemas give us a little souvenir, and the souvenir they gave us was one of the scream masks. Now, if you haven't seen these before, they're a black mask with like a white face and the mouth. is like, oh, wide open. And it looks kind of scary. And my mate and I thought this would come in handy sometime down the track. We didn't realize it was going to come in handy so quickly. And so we decided to leave and we went home and my mate was driving and we had to drop the girls off at their home. And one of the girls was on crutches. So I got out like a gentleman and I helped her out of the car and I helped her to the door and said goodbye. And we came back to the car. When I got back to the car, I said to my mate, I've got an idea. You know that scream mask we just got? What if we drive a little bit up the road and pretend that we've left and I'll jump out of the car, put the mask on, run around to the back door and go rah in the back door. Uh, He agreed that it was a genius idea. And so we drove just a little bit up the road. We jumped out. I jumped out, put the mask on, ran around the back and it was perfect timing. Um, divine providence maybe. And, and I was, as I was coming to the back door, they had those big wide double doors. The blinds were up, the lights were on. And as I came round to the back door, the girl on the crutches was just coming into the kitchen facing the back door. And so I come up to the back door and I'm like, rah. And what happened in the next minute really happened in slow motion. I went, rah. She screamed and literally fell off her crutches and went bang on the ground, incredibly loud. And as I'm going, ah, her dad runs down the stairs thinking, what is all of the noise? What's happened to my daughter? Why is she screaming? And he comes down, the problem being that he is stark naked. (laughs) I'm standing at the back door. She's on the ground. And in the distance is the dad standing there in the nud and I'm going, ah, oh, and she's going, ah, and he's going, oh, a bit like that. And here I am thinking the most scary thing that night was going to be the movie. I got over the movie pretty quickly, but that thing burnt something on my brain for eternity and made for very awkward conversation with her dad from that time forward. Sometimes when unexpected things happen, we just freak out. Now, that night... Uh, She freaked out, I freaked out, the dad freaked out, then I freaked out again. (laughs) When unexpected things happen, sometimes we simply just freak out. And that's what was happening in this passage. Something unexpected was going on. For the Jews, they were seeing the gospel being preached and many non-Jewish people, the Bible refers to them as Gentiles, were responding to the gospel and they were giving their lives to Jesus and they were being saved without keeping all the laws, all of the commandments, uh, including avoiding being circumcised that all the Jews had to do um, in their mind to be saved. And so some of these Jewish men were freaking out. They were thinking, what do we do with these people? You see, for thousands of years, the Jews or Israel thought that they alone were God's chosen people. But as we've heard in recent weeks in chapters 10 to 15 of the book of Acts, which we're going through at the moment, many Gentiles have been responding to the good news of the gospel and putting their faith in Jesus. It was wonderful. It was supernatural. It was a great commission coming to pass in an incredible way and God was working in it and this is how it was always meant to be. We've heard in this series that in Genesis chapter 12, Abram was given this blessing. He'd be blessed. He'd become a great nation in order to bless all the nations on earth. In the Great Commission, we see that original calling reaffirmed when the disciples are told to go and make disciples of all nations. In the passage that was read today beautifully by Anne, I should say, Uh, Even the prophets in verse 13, James points out that all the prophets point to the truth that God himself was the author of salvation to the Gentiles and that it had always been his plan. However, some of these Jewish men had missed it. And they were insisting that the Gentiles became Jewish in their practices before they could truly be accepted by God. And so we need to sort of revisit the law. If you know your Old Testament, you'll know that in the, in the book of Exodus, after God miraculously delivers his people out of Egypt towards the promised land, on that journey they come to Mount Sinai. And Moses at the top of the mountain is given the Ten Commandments by God and then he comes down and he shares those commandments with the people. And over the next three books, uh, Deuteronomy, um, Numbers and... Um, my, my goodness, I've gone blank. Um, Numbers, Deuteronomy and... My goodness, where am I? sorry, Leviticus, Deuteronomy and Numbers, I've gone blank, we see his people given a whole lot more laws as well that they needed to follow. And so for hundreds of years, the Jews had adhered to all of these sorts of laws and regulations. So they were given food laws. There were certain foods that they could or couldn't eat, and some of them were were deemed unclean, so they had to abstain from those foods. There were ceremonial cleansing laws. There were some things they they could touch and couldn't touch, and if they happened to come in contact with some of those things, they'd, they'd need to be kind of... Quarantined until they were once again deemed clean. There was a sacrificial system where they had to bring an unblemished animal on a regular basis and they would come before the Lord and they would sacrifice this animal. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death and it says without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. And so these people would bring this unblemished animal before God as a sacrifice. And as the blood was shed from that animal, it became a substitute for them. The theological word is a substitutionary atonement. And so as they sacrificed this animal, the animal died to death, they deserved to die. And so their sins were atoned as this animal, this sacrificial lamb or bull or whatever, was sacrificed to the Lord. And so they had to keep this sacrificial system. They had strict moral laws. And then on top of all of that, the men needed to be circumcised. Now, you can understand why these men who had to go through all of this stuff, including circumcision, are not happy about the Gentiles now becoming God's people without having to be circumcised. They, uh, I was going to say, they didn't want them to take a shortcut, but in fact, that's exactly what they wanted them to do. We've taken the shortcut. You need to take the shortcut if you want to come to know God. And I've got to say, I know exactly how they feel. I have been getting a bit of pressure on the home front recently to have a bit of a snip in that region myself. i um, not talking about circumcision. That happened years ago. Getting a bit personal, aren't I? Um, I'm talking about something else which most of you would know what I'm talking about. We are talking about making sure that Lenny has a full stop on the end of his name. and I'm getting a lot of pressure to go and do that. And I've got to say it's not that enticing. I'm not that excited about this whole process. I'm not excited about some strange man I don't know poking around in that region, let alone poking around in that region with a sharp object. I'm just not that excited about him doing that and cutting in that area and then me handing over hundreds of dollars for the privilege of being through that. Having said that, if you're getting the same pressure that I'm getting at the moment, um, please come and see me after the service. I'll lay hands on you and pray for you and then maybe we can look for a two-for-one deal (laughs) and we can hold hands during the process and that should make things a lot easier. For these Jews, they had been through the process of circumcision without all the modern comforts, without all the doctors and surgeons we have today. And so for them to see these Gentiles coming into relationship with God without going through that ordeal, I've got to say I'd be a bit cheesed off as well. And that's where the passage starts today. Verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. What they're saying is basically this. We've gone through all this stuff. We have kept the law. We've touched nothing unclean. We're sacrificed as we're meant to. We've abstained from all sorts of food, including bacon. I mean, I love bacon and eggs. Eggs is just by itself no good. They have abstained from all of these foods. And above all, we have been circumcised. And so there's no way that you can be saved if you don't do all the things that God has asked us to do. And so they start telling the Gentiles, hold up a second. Let's get all this sorted out first. Let's make sure you get all the boxes ticked, jump through all the hoops, and then perhaps we can talk about you getting in. Because at the moment, we're in, you're out. In verse 2 it says, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Last week we talked about the fact that religious people often put up walls to keep people away from God. But our job as Christians is to pull the walls down, to remove the obstacles so that they can see Jesus for who he is. Our job is to pray that they will come to know him. And as they come to know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, and as they receive the Holy Spirit, as we have received the Holy Spirit, we pray that he will convict them, he will change them, he will transform them, because that's his job, not ours. Our job is to love people, to share the truth of the word, to stand on our convictions, and to point them back to Jesus. And that's what Paul and Barnabas were doing as they preached this gospel of grace. The whole series that we're going through in this whole book of Acts series from the word go, has all been about being a people of God on mission, that we've been anointed by God, we've been saved by God, we've been filled with his spirit to be people who are on mission. But I want to say this morning, there's no point going on mission if we don't know the message. And the message of the gospel is overwhelmingly grace, that God loves you and God loves me so much that he gave up his most prized possession, his one and only son who lived amongst us as one of us and died on the cross in our place, the perfect, sinless Son of God. And as He died on the cross, He died the death that you and I deserve to pay for the sins that we've committed. And as we accept what He has done, as we respond to the work of the Spirit in our hearts and receive Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, the Bible says we're forgiven. The Bible says we're a new creation. The Bible says we will be saved. And so the Gospel is faith in the grace of God plus nothing. Faith plus grace plus nothing equals salvation. It's so important that we understand that. And so if that's the truth of the gospel, and I wholeheartedly believe with all of my heart that it is, we need to ask the question, what was the purpose of the law? Why did God hand down this law to these people, to his people? And why don't these Gentiles now, have to live by the same law in order to be in relationship with God. Well, I think as you look through the, New, the Old Testament, it becomes clear that the law was given to God's people to help them to be set apart. They were living amongst the nations. The nations were doing all sorts of evil things. And God gave them this law as a way of being set apart to, to be different to all those other nations. It was to help facilitate a relationship with God by living holy lives before a holy God. But we need to understand the truth that the law was never meant to be a permanent solution. It was only ever a temporary measure which pointed to its fulfilment in a greater reality and that greater reality is Jesus. So we look to Jesus as the fulfilment of the law. Galatians chapter 3 puts it really well. It says, before the coming of this faith in Christ, we were held custody under the law. We were locked up until faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified now by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew nor Gentile. There is no longer male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. That's Old Testament language and heirs according to the promise that is Jesus. Listen to the language. Under the law, we were held in custody. Under the law, we were locked up. I see Sam here this morning. He's become a policeman recently. He knows what this is all about. When we take someone into custody, we lock them up. They're not free. They can't get out. They're restrained. They're restricted. They're stuck there. And the law held God's people in custody, locked up, until Jesus came. And Jesus sets us free from the demands of the law. Romans chapter 3 says, Now that we know whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by declaring the law. We can't do it. We can't be righteous in God's eyes by keeping the law because we don't keep it. We'll probably fail it today in some way. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. You see, the sin was put there and as a result, we become conscious that we are sinners and we can't make ourselves righteous and so it reminds us that we need a saviour, someone who can and that saviour is Jesus. Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, says these words, he says, Legalism fails miserably at the one thing it's supposed to do, encourage obedience. In a strange twist, a system of strict laws actually puts new ideas of law-breaking into a person's mind. As the Apostle Paul explains, For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had set not said, Do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by that commandment, produced in me every kind of of covetous desire. He goes on in 1 Corinthians 3 to say that the law brings death. But even though it brings death, it's glorious because it points to something that brings life and the person it points to is Jesus. Jesus is better. And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus came to fulfill the law. You see, the law was impossible to keep. It leaves us feeling helpless. It leaves us in custody. It leaves us locked up, condemned, ashamed. But Jesus sets us free because Jesus fulfills the law. And so the food laws no longer apply. We read about this in Acts chapter 10. Jesus said, don't call unclean what I have now called clean. In the Gospels, he says, it's not what goes in your mouth that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of your mouth. And that can only change when you have a changed heart. And I give you the Holy Spirit and the fruits of the Spirit, which are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. As Jesus saves us and fills us with his Spirit, the things that come out of our mouth start to become pure and pleasing to God. The sacrificial system no longer applies. Please do not bring your sheep to church next week. It'll be messy. We have O, H, and S. We have Tumar Community Centre that won't be happy about blood everywhere. Do not bring your sheep and please do not bring a bull. We are a no-bull church. (laughs) We hit the bull's eye in Jesus. Um, And so we don't need to bring the bull. And the reason we don't need to sacrifice anymore because that was just a temporary temporary situation that pointed to its ultimate fulfilment and the ultimate fulfilment was Jesus. On the cross, he became our once and for all sacrifice. We don't have to sacrifice anymore for our sins because Jesus died for them. He fulfills the sacrificial system. No more ceremonial cleansing. Jesus said, I have made you clean. Let me make it clear. It's still good to wash your hands after the toilet. It's still good to shower regularly. It's still good to be clean. But we don't have to do those things in order to be in relationship with God. Jesus says, in me, my blood has washed you clean. You are pure. You are righteous. You are holy in the sight of God, not because of you, but because Jesus died in your place. And circumcision is no longer necessary either. You see, in the Old Testament, circumcision was a physical mark that marked God's people. But God's not looking for external things anymore. He's looking for changed hearts. And the New Testament says, not about physical circumcision, but a circumcision of the heart that marks you as my people. We are no longer under the law. We are under grace. And when Jesus stretched out his hands and said, it is finished, it means that the law no longer binds us. It's no longer required because we have a permanent solution in Christ Jesus. Jesus fulfills the law. In Acts chapter 13 verse 38, it says I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through you, or through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. And so the gist or the question of this whole chapter is do we need to abide by the law of Moses or is Jesus enough for salvation? I don't have to tell you my answer this morning. It's resoundingly Jesus. It's always and only Jesus. Is it law or is it grace? In verse 2 it said the believers came into sharp dispute with the Pharisees about is it law or is it grace? And so Paul and Barnabas are appointed and along with some other believers they're sent up to Jerusalem to talk to the apostles and elders to sort this out. In church history, we know it as the Council of Jerusalem. Now, at the moment, we're in grand final fever, aren't we? (laughs) Few of us. But it's really exciting because it's the one year preview of when St Kilda win the next premiership. Um, but at the moment, we just put up with like the preview game, which is, I think, Hawthorne versus West Coast or something like that. And so next Saturday, we have this grand final that sends Melbourne into sort of this crazy, Um, celebration. And Saturday, next week, Hawthorne and West Coast will be out on the ground and they're going to be fighting for the premiership. They're going to leave everything out on the field because they're fighting for the ultimate prize and it's a premiership cup. That's what they want. In this passage, there is a battle going on. It's a battle between law and grace and it's a much more important battle that they are fighting. They're not fighting for a piece of tin cup. They are fighting for the gospel to protect what the gospel actually is. And so you have the Pharisees fighting for law and you have the apostles fighting for grace. What the Pharisees didn't understand is that the battle had already been won at the cross. The grace always triumphs over law. And yet the Pharisees stand up for the law. They get up and they present their case and in verse 5, They say the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Verse 7, after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. I want you to notice that all the heavy hitters for the gospel, all the guys that God used in extraordinary ways, they all stand on the side of grace. And Peter's standing up fighting for grace. He's fighting for the gospel. And he says these words, Brothers, You know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them. That's what religious people do. They make it us versus them. For he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? You see, religious people, they just worry about the letter of the law and they're always judging. We see this in the Gospels time and time again, the Pharisees. There's this one situation where Jesus encounters this man with a withered hand. For his whole life, he's had this withered hand. He probably can't do anything that we take for granted, probably never able to hold down a proper job. And Jesus comes with the intention of healing this man. And the passage says that the Pharisees are watching to see whether he will heal on the Sabbath. And he knows what they're looking for. And he goes to this man and he heals him. Miraculously, instantaneously, his hand goes from being withered to being healthy. All of a sudden, this man can live a normal life for the first time in his life. This should be a time of great celebration. The Pharisees should be going, wow, look what Jesus did. This guy must have been the Messiah. Look at this man. Now he is free. They should be rejoicing. But what do they do? They're furious that Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Let me say that sentence in a different way. The Pharisees were furious that Jesus healed someone. What a tragic sentence that is. That they would be furious. They would be so caught up with the law, they would miss what Jesus was doing. In this passage, they have a very similar rationale. They don't really have any rationale. They just stand up and say, well, these Gentiles have already been saved. They must now be circumcised and keep the law. But Peter's response is driven by the Holy Spirit. And he stands up and he makes three points. First of all, he says, God is the one that's made the choice for the Gentiles to be saved. And so if God's chosen them to be saved without keeping all these laws and regulations, who are we to now add some extra stuff for them to do? Point number one. Point number two is this, that God gave the Gentiles the Holy Spirit just the same way that he's given us the Holy Spirit and he's purified their hearts in the same way that he's purified ours, not by keeping the law, but simply through faith. The third point is this, that if we were the ones given the law and we haven't been able to keep it, why would we make them try and do it if we're relying on keeping the word the, the law to be saved we're in a lot of trouble no no we're saved by faith and so are they and then it comes to the most important verse in the whole chapter and perhaps one of the most important verses you'll find in all of scripture verse 11 peter says no we believe it's through the grace of our lord jesus that we are saved just as they are. You see, grace is the center point of the gospel. If you have no grace, you have no gospel. If there's no grace, it's simply not good news because we can't keep the law. We can never be righteous in God's eyes and so we'll always fall short of the glory of God. But it's into our shortfall that Jesus steps. It's into our shortcomings that grace comes into the gap. And the Bible says that the grace of God is sufficient for us. Now, I've got to say, there's one confusing thing in this passage that needs to be addressed. Before I said it's faith plus grace plus nothing equals salvation. But in this passage, they consider this issue and then James hands down a verdict for the Gentiles. He says, we don't feel like we should burden you anymore except there's a whole lot of other things we want you to keep. Verse 24 to verse 29. Let me read it to you. James says we have heard that some went out from us without our authorisation and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing, that it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. What's going on here? The whole passage has been about grace. You don't need to keep the law to be saved. And now it seems like they're tacking a whole lot of law back on for the Gentiles. Well, I want to make it clear this morning what's going on here. What James is doing has got nothing to do with salvation. He's not saying you have to do these things to be saved. It's got nothing to do with salvation and it's got everything to do with fellowship. You see, the Jews were still living by certain customs and certain cultural norms. And the Gentiles weren't bound by those same things. And so they had every right to come and eat and do whatever they wanted to do. And that would be permissible. That would be their right. But the question is, would that be beneficial for fellowship? And James is suggesting that it's not and it would go well for them if they didn't do those things things. So let me give you a modern day example. I think alcohol would be a really good example in this regard. I don't particularly have an issue with someone having a beer or a wine with dinner. I had a beer watching the footy last night. I don't have an issue with that at all. But I have Christian friends who have a very different conviction. They have a conviction that we should completely abstain from alcohol. And that's, that's their conviction. That's okay. I have other people that have struggled with alcohol And so if I was meeting for dinner with a Christian friend who held that conviction, or someone, worse of all, that that struggled with addiction, I'm not going to crack at a six-pack. I'm not going to open a bottle of wine and say, hey, guess what? We're going to have some drinks tonight. Why wouldn't I do that? What, What would happen to that relationship? It would be a very short one. And I would demonstrate by my actions that I'm putting my rights above that relationship. And so I would make a choice to abstain. From alcohol in the presence of those people for the sake of them and for the sake of fellowship. In this passage, the Jews and Gentiles who were separated for centuries were coming together in an amazing way in salvation, but now they had to work out how are we going to live together in fellowship. And the only way it's going to work is for them to do it by laying down their lives, laying down their preferences, laying down their rights for one another and for the sake of relationship. It's the same for us in Christian community. We should gladly lay down some of our preferences, some of our wants, some of our desires for the greater good as we serve God and love one another. We're not in a community like this simply to get what we can get out of it. We're in a community like this to worship God together and to find out and discover what gifts he's given that we can sow into it. And so what James is saying has got nothing to do with salvation because salvation is faith in grace plus nothing. It had everything to do with fellowship. Let me finish really briefly this morning with three really quick applications on grace. The first one's more of a definition than it is an application. It's an acronym. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. We often say that salvation is a free gift, and it is a free gift for us. It wasn't for Jesus. It cost him his life. On the cross, Christ got what we deserved, and in him we get what he deserves. He was innocent, but he was punished for our sins. We are guilty, but we are declared innocent through Christ. That's grace. He deserved life, but got death. We deserve death, but get life. That's grace. He deserved relationship with God the Father and we deserve to be separated from him for all eternity because of our sin. And yet he was forsaken on the cross. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he say those words? So you and I will never have to. He was forsaken so we can be forgiven, accepted and have eternal life. That is amazing grace. Don't ever forget that Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. The second thing about grace is this, that grace is received, not earned. R.C. Sproul says, "Perhaps perhaps the most difficult task for us to perform is to rely on God's grace and God's grace alone for salvation. It's difficult for our pride to rest on grace. Grace is for other people, for beggars. We don't want to live by a heavenly welfare system. We want to earn our way and atone for our own sins. We like to think that we will go to heaven because we deserve to be there. And yet the Bible says in Romans that there is no one righteous, not even one. Let me put it this way today. If we had Mother Teresa standing on this side of the room and we had, say, Hitler on this side of the room, and if we could visually see all their righteous deeds, and we started putting them on the ground and piling them up, after a little bit of time, Mother Teresa would have a massive pile of righteousness. And if we stacked up Hitler's, it would probably be a very, very little pile, if anything. But the truth is, if Mother Teresa and Hitler gathered up all of their good deeds, and they would not stood before the throne of God... And they tried to earn their way into heaven by listing off all of their good deeds. Mother Teresa's good deeds would have exactly the same impact as Hitler's good deeds. They'd be completely useless. Because it doesn't matter how good we are, we always fall short of the glory of God. And so we can't ever earn our way into a relationship. We can't stand before Jesus one day and say, well, I helped the little old lady across the road. I've got a sponsored child. I went to church. I said some nice things. And so I deserve to be in heaven. There's only be one question we have to answer standing before God one day and that is, did you accept my son Jesus Christ? And if we can say yes to that question, it's a question that all eternity hinges on because we will be righteous, not because of anything we've done but because of what Jesus has done for us. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be people who do good deeds. We're called to it. We're equipped for it. But what I am saying is that good works are good things to do But good works won't get us to God, only grace will. We won't get to heaven because we deserve it, we'll get to heaven because God is merciful, because God is love, because God is grace. And so my final point today is simply this, rest in the grace of God. So reassuring, so comforting to know that God has done the work for us, that he has made a way for us. That salvation is not dependent on us. It's dependent on Christ. So we don't have to wake up every day and go, am I in or am I out? I didn't do my quiet time today. I said a swear word. I haven't been as good as what I should be. Am I a Christian today? If I get hit by a bus now, will I go to heaven or not? I've met Christians like that. No, no, we can rest in the grace of God because it's not dependent on us. It's all about Him. You know, on Sunday afternoons is one of my favourite times of the week. When I get home from church... I, I relax. The first thing I do is I get my PJs on and then I head for the couch and I do this. Oh, so relaxing. So good. I don't want to get up now. This is good That's what I do on a Sunday afternoon. And let me tell you, that should be the posture of our soul before God when it comes to salvation. Not striving, not working hard, not trying to earn His favour, but resting in the finished work of the cross of Jesus Christ. You know the Bible only tells us to strive for one thing, and it's to strive to enter that rest. The book of Hebrews it says, "For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his in creation." Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. It's not saying stop doing good things, but rather stop relying on them for God's approval and for salvation. The only difference between Christianity And every other faith, one of the main differences is that in all other religions, men are trying to reach up to God to try and earn favour with him. But Christianity is all about God reaching down to man by sending his one and only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him will not die, but will have eternal life. Grace is truly amazing. Faith in grace plus nothing equals salvation. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is so challenging. We thank you that it's so life-changing. We thank you that it takes the pressure off because even though we feel the need to try and perform and earn your approval, Lord, we know that you've done the work at the cross, that we have to put our faith in you and you alone for salvation. We thank you, Lord God, for this amazing gift of grace. This morning I pray for anyone here who doesn't know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. Today I pray that you would grip their heart Help them to realise it doesn't matter what they've done or haven't done, that in you they're a new creation. They are saved, forgiven and given the hope of eternal life. Lord, I pray that you'd open our eyes to see that today. For us who have been Christians for a longer period of time, Lord, help us to rest in and live in that glorious grace for the benefit of the world around us and for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Grace really is amazing.